0: This morning, we're continuing our, our time and our study through the book of James, looking at this series, God Has an App, and I want to tell you about two brothers, Rudolph and Adolf Dashler. They created a shoe empire in their mother's laundry room in 1920. They grew up in a small German town, which I'm not going to try to pronounce because I will butcher it. So I'm just going to tell you, the small German town, and they started a shoe company. Now, Rudolph he was the salesman. He liked going and sharing with people about their product. Adolf was the designer. He designed athletic shoes. And they created this business known as the Dassler Brothers Shoe Factory. So they eventually moved out of Mama's house and started their own company, built their own building, and things were going really good. A few years later, their designs – became world-renowned because in 1936, during the Summer Olympics in Berlin, they worked it out to have U.S. sprinter Jesse Owens wear their tennis shoe. If you know your history, Jesse Owens would go on to win four gold medals in the Berlin Olympic Games. And so this cemented their reputation, and their company just boomed. They had relationships with some of the most famous athletes at the time, and trainers were wearing their shoes, and their business was booming. Things were successful. Sometime after World War II, there was an argument between the brothers, so much so that they decided to split the company. In doing so, one took one half, the other took the other half. The rumor is that Rudolph, in the middle of the night, packed up his bags, packed up his family, ...and all of his equipment and moved across a river that ran through the town where they lived. And he set up shop on one side of the river. Adolf set up shop on the other side of the river. And the story goes, we're not sure what caused the rift. Some think that Adolf got mad at Rudolph for going behind his back to talk to Jesse Owens about wearing their shoe. Some think it may have had to do with uh, political party affiliation with the Nazis during that time... Some thought it could've been their wives didn't get along. The story is we don't know. No one to this day knows why they stopped talking to each other. But in 1948, the company split in two. Rudolph's on one side of the river, Adolf is on the other side of the river. And so they started their own companies. You know their companies today. Rudolph started a company that we know today as Puma. Adolph started a company we know as Adidas. Two very successful shoe companies. But here is where the story takes a twist. The river through this town not only divided the brothers, but it divided the whole city. You had some that were Rudolph supporters. You had some that were Adolf supporters. To the point that the town goes by the nickname, The Place of Bent Necks. Because before somebody will start a conversation with another person, they look to see what brand of shoes they're wearing. Think about that for a moment. Beside being brand loyalty, think about that. They won't start a conversation if they're wearing the other guy's tennis shoes. And so it caused this division within the community to the point that you have two of the largest athletic apparel and shoe companies in the world And the brothers, the designers, the owners can't get along. History has told us that to this day the families don't get along. If you were to go to the cemetery where the two brothers are buried, they're buried in the same cemetery, but they're buried as far apart as they could be because of the strife, because of the argument. And to this day, no one knows what caused the rift between Rudolph and Adolf. But here's the reality, and here's what's more tragic to the story. We see this every day. Every day we see this same story repeated over and over and over again. Wives and husbands divorce. Parents don't talk to children. Brothers don't talk to brothers. Sisters don't talk to sisters. Longtime friendships are destroyed over something simple, something hard. Each person is left resentful. Heartbroken and like the Dashler brothers, probably can't even remember why they had an argument in the first place. In your handout, I made this statement for you if you were able to investigate the heart of everyone you saw, you would notice a slight fracture upon every heart. If you were to go, if you could see everybody's heart, really look at their heart, you find a slight fracture in the heart. The main cause of shattered relationships is because the bond between the people that love each other has been broken. It's a relationship that we have for a moment. And Think about the relationships you have in your life for just a second. Those of you who are married, your spouse is probably your, or should be, your chief priority. If you're single, it's your friends. Think about the relationships you have in your life. You have relationships with friends. You have relationships with parents, grandparents. You have relationships with siblings. You have relationships with classmates, teammates. You have relationships at work. You have relationships at church. But here's what we have forgotten. We have forgotten that every one of us is made in the image of God. And we are designed and we desire to have lasting, loving, meaningful relationships. Before we dive into James this morning, take your copy of God's Word turn to genesis chapter 1 and what i want to show you for just a second and remind you this morning that as you are created in the image of a relational god you're created in the image of a god who wants to have a relationship with you we see it in his word genesis chapter 1 verse 26 the first part of that verse simply states then god said let us make man in our image according to our Likeness. Notice the wording here. It's very important that you notice that the God who is triune, the God who is three in one, begins with the word us and our. Notice what he doesn't say. He didn't say, let me make man in my image, in my likeness. He uses the word us and ours to indicate the very existence of a special union between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit that we know as the Trinity. Yes, We see God in his fullness. We see that in his own identity, there is a relationship. Now, this morning, this sometimes is a hard concept to grasp, the idea of the Trinity and how that truly works. But here's what I want you to see this morning, just in this one verse before we jump into James chapter 4, and it's simply this. God, by nature, is holy and entirely relational and loving toward his children because he is holy and entirely relational and loving towards his whole being. The next statement in your line simply says this, God created us to have a relationship with him first and with others. So if that's the idea and that's the concept, what happens when our hearts get broken? What happens when those relationships that we have get shattered? What causes the broken heart? What leads to that? So this morning, I want to take this message a little bit different than what I've done the last number of weeks. I want to look at some causes of a broken heart, and then I want to show you how to restore the broken heart. So take your copy of God's Word, turn back to James chapter 4. And just to give you a heads up, this morning we're spending a lot of time in James chapter 4 and in Matthew chapter 7. bulk of our times in James chapter 4. Rest of our time is going to be part of our time in Matthew seven, but I want to show you right at the beginning is what causes the heartbreak. What are the reasons that our hearts get broken? First one is this: there's the desire that battles within us. The desire that battles within us. James chapter four, verses one and two. Look at verse one says, "Where do wars?" And fights come from among you. Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? James is pointing out to us that our relationships come from selfish desires, having and wanting things that we don't need to have or we shouldn't have. Look at verse 2. It says, You lust and do not have, you murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. Do you realize this morning that most of our arguments result from us not getting what we want? Most of our arguments are that reason. I want to show you a statistic that's going to blow your mind this morning. In 2017, there were 15,129 murders in the United States. Of those murders, 820 were a result of a robbery, burglary. The other 3,423 that are part of that list are the result of an argument. Somebody not having what they want. The desire that battles within us. And it's hard for us to imagine that in the darkest recesses of ourselves is this intense desire to have what we can not have and the struggle is not just limited to physical things think about the last argument you had what was the cause of the argument was it because somebody overstepped a boundary was it because somebody had neglected you or said something you didn't like or you didn't feel respected we all have this expectation listen to me we have these expectations that when they're not met this is the origin of an argument Because an expectation is not met because of the desire that works and fights within our lives. Think about it this way. There was a young couple who got married. When the young couple were younger, the husband's mom, when he was younger, his mom did all the gardening. She did the weeds. She cut the grass. She took care of everything. The daughter had, the wife rather, had brothers who took care of everything. So when they got married, there was an issue. Who's going to do the yard work? Because the brother grew up one way, but the husband, I keep saying brother. Husband grew up one way, the wife grew up a different way. So you can see the potential for an argument. So do you know how they settled the argument? Who's gonna handle the yard work? They hired a gardener. They didn't have any more arguments, so we're good. But here's the issue. The focus is on unmet expectations. Think about expectations. Who's gonna do the yard work? Who's gonna handle the finances? Who's going to deal with the extended family? The relationships that, if we're not careful, can be destroyed over the littlest things. And we all have wants that go unfilled, and they go unfilled for this reason. And so the first step to restoring a broken heart is to take a good, long look at the selfish desires that battle within us and work on reducing their importances. So the thing that causes broken relationships are those desires that fight against what we want. The desire to have and cannot have. So how do we push those back? How do we fight those desires? It's by taking a good look at those desires. Because most of them are going to be selfish. And have that battle within us and work on reducing the importance. So the first way we do this is we the desires the battle. And that's the first problem issue. Second one is this. Our failure to ask God. If you go back to verse 2, the second part of verse 2 of James chapter 4 says this, you do not have because you do not ask. You do not have because you do not ask. Take your Bibles. I told you we're going to be also in Matthew chapter 7, so go ahead and turn there this morning. We're going to do a lot of back and forth between these two books today. But in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus is sitting on the hillside of Galilee, the lake of the city of Galilee, And he's talking to the masses. And when we get to chapter 7, this is still part of that message he's preaching to those on that hillside. And look at what Jesus says in verses 7 through 8. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be open. So there's the setup. Jesus is telling those who are listening, ask, and it will be given. Now, he's be, be careful here. Don't think this is a wish list. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. But what he's saying here is he's saying you're not asking with the right reason. You're not asking with expectation. Because look at what he says in verses 9 through 11. Because he almost asked a hypothetical question based on the statement he just made. Starting in verse 9, it says, Or what man is there among you who, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? Like a father who desires good things for his children... God desires to give us what we need, not what we want. But when we have a broken heart or a broken relationship that needs to be restored, how many of us are willing to get on our knees and ask God to help us in that relationship? Listen, it's amazing to me to think that we have made a mess of certain relational conflicts because we try to solve them on our own. Instead of going to the Father to help us restore that relationship, we think to ourselves, you know what, I'm a big boy, I can do it myself. And the reality is we can't do it apart from God leading and helping us because we act in pride, we act out of selfishness, and we fail to give and ask the one who gives to us wholly and gives us a humble perspective. This morning, you may be dealing with a broken relationship simply because you have failed to ask God to help fix it. And you're trying to fix it on your own. So there's a desire that battles within us. There's a failure to ask God. Here's the third problem in breaking hearts. And it's simply this a selfish shopping list. A selfish shopping list. Back in James chapter 4, I told you in the latter part of verse 2, James made the statement, you, yet you do not have because you do not ask. But look at verse 3. Verse 3, he simply says, you ask and do not receive because you ask amiss. In the New King James, that the words amiss, in other translations, it may say the wrong motive, that you may spend it on your pleasures. What James is showing us is that selfishness has a way of polluting relationships, and it even seeps into our prayer life. Yes, you turn to God first. That's the biggest step in restoring a broken heart, but we have to go to God with pure motives, not in pure motives. There was a singer who wrote a song called The Shopping List Song, and he talked about all the things he wanted God to give him. He wanted God to give him a new car. He wanted God to make him look good. He wanted God to give him all these things out of a selfish motive. Listen, our heavenly father is not a magic genie in a lamp. But too many to go to him in prayer thinking, if I ask it, he'll give it to me. So it's the illusion of this lamp. We're rubbing, hoping he'll answer. And the problem is we approach God like a genie in a lamp and he doesn't meet our needs and our requests, we don't see him as God. There's a danger there because here is who God is. He is the almighty God who cares about our problems and our needs, but he will not gratify our sinful request to our own detriment. He doesn't give us what we want. He gives us what we need for the moment. Yet too many times we make up this this self this shopping list of things we need from God. Asking God for something with the wrong motive is another cause of a broken relationship. So it's the desires. It's that shopping list. It's the failure to ask God, here's the fourth thing that leads to brokenness, and then we're really going to jump into this this morning. Friendship with the world. Friendship with with the world the final cause of broken relationships involves an unhealthy association between us and the world look at verse 4 of James chapter 4 he gets very specific right here starting in verse 4 he says adulterers and adulteress do you not know that friendship with the world is enemy be with God enmity with God it's hostility towards God. He says, whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. We cannot ignore the severity of James's words right here. He's calling our attention to something serious. I cannot be a friend to the world and a friend of God. Notice how James starts this verse. He's comparing friendships with adultery. And he says this, Just as a man or a woman betrays his or her spouse by having a physical affair, we are unfaithful to God when we dabble in earthly exports. When we dabble with the things of the world, we're telling God he's not good enough. And notice that wording. The wording is harsh, but it's true. So think about this. What 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 constitutes? There's the better word. What constitutes? Friendship with the world. What does that really look like? Take your Bibles, turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I want you to see this. I want you to see Paul reminding the church in Cornith what a relationship with the world looks like. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, nor fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, no covetous, no drunkards, no rivalers, no extortionists will inherit the kingdom of God, verse 11. And such were some of you. Some of you were just like this. But look at the next word, my favorite word in Scripture. But you were washed, but you were sanctified But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. As a child of God, to return to worldly desires is to be disloyal to God. If I acknowledge that Jesus died for my sin, I shouldn't want the things of the world. Yet when I go back and step towards the things of the world, I'm literally turning my back on God and what he did for me on the cross and I'm saying, God, you are not good enough. Jesus, you are not good enough. That's what it looks like to have a friendship with the world. It's that hatred towards God. And it's important. It is so important. You don't have to turn there, but I want you to write down this reference because I want to read you what it says here. First John chapter 2, 15 through 16. First John chapter 2, verses 15 through 16. Listen to these words very carefully as we think about this idea of trying not to have friendships with the world. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is not of the Father, but it is of the world. Verse 17, listen to these words. And the world is passing away in the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. You and I belong to God. We've been bought with the blood of Jesus. So in any attempt to maintain friendship with the world goes against the very spirit it is in him who dwells in us. And those two forces cannot meet in the middle. They conflict. And so when we look at this, the final source of this harmony in our relationship with God and others is this broken relationship. And we see these relationships in the church. We see them in homes. We see them in school. We see them at work. And God's not blind to this issue. God is not blind to shattered hearts. He cares deeply to restore our heart. But when we fail to live in proper relation with him and with others, we are missing out on a huge part of his design for our life. This is why we have this passage in section of scripture back in James chapter 4. This is why God has given us an app that we can apply to our life to show us the changes that need to take place to restore the broken heart that you might be dealing with this morning. And God, and his grace and mercy, helps us put back those pieces. So how do we restore a broken relationship? The first thing you have to do is you have to unfriend an old friend. You have to unfriend an old friend. According to Facebook, I have 1,134 friends. Some of them are actual friends some are acquaintances, some are people that I've met doing training for the convention or for Lifeway, some are high school people that I knew. But what's interesting is do you ever wrestle with the quality of those friendships that you have on Facebook? I mean, let's be honest. How many of us are guilty of occasionally hitting the like button at something that somebody says? Now, we do it because we're encouraged by it or we support it. But let's be honest, do we really care what Tim had for lunch from McDonald's? <laughs> Aren't you frustrated, John? You'll love this one. Aren't you frustrated when you find out the Georgia score before you get home? Your Facebook friend's popping it. And listen, I don't care about Julie in Montana and what new parade she did with her baby food that her kid likes now. I don't care. Yet we're drawn to these things, and the problem is they consume us. But here's the cool thing about Facebook. They have a neat feature. It's called unfriend, which sounds crazy to do, but you can just unfriend them. This feature allows you to remove them from your account so you don't see what they have. But look at James 4, verses 4 through 5. The latter part of verse 4 says this. Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the Spirit says in vain, The Spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously. The Spirit in us yearns jealously. We have to apply the same things we do on Facebook to our spiritual lives And sometimes the first step is unfriending that friend, and it may involve unfriending the world. Listen, the definition of a friend is is someone, it's by feeling of affection or personal regard. That's the definition of a friend. You have a personal feeling towards that person or a personal regard. But here's what I want to show you. We are a friend. Friend to the world when we show regard for the things of the world that cause us to covet, fight, quarrel, steal, and even potentially kill. Think about that for a moment. We are a friend of the world when we show regard to the things of the world. It's amazing how we see floods of images, and we think because that product works, we need to have it. Or somebody's trying on this latest fashion, so we've got to wear it. Or somebody's driving this kind of car, so we've got to drive it. And we'll do any means necessary to get these things, and we just listed what it might take. But let me remind you what it says over in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 through 24. You don't have to turn there, but I've got it on the screen because this is actually a screenshot from my Bible but I want you to see something. I hope y'all can see it. Eh, you might need to turn there. <laughs> but this is what Scripture says. He says that you put off concerning the former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to deceitful lust, and be renewed by the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness, so in To me, to not have a relationship with the world, I've got to take off the old man, what Scripture says there, and I've got to put on the new man. But in putting on the new man, I should not want to take that off. We fail, listen, we fail to reject worldly habits and those things that entice us when we cherish them more than we cherish Jesus. Remember, there used to be a desire for those things before Jesus came into our life. But if those things are driving me away from Jesus, it makes me an enemy of God and causes the spirit that dwells in me. Look what scripture says there back in James chapter 4. It says the spirit that dwells in us in verse 5 yearns jealously. You and I cannot be a true friend of God unless we unfriend the world. listen, your success in unfriending the world is made possible because of the humility and grace of God. Because look at what it says in verse 6 of James chapter 4. But he gives more grace, therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You have to unfriend the world with all diligence and humility. It takes both those things, and that's the first step of restoring a broken heart, is to unfriend the world with diligence and humility. Here's the second point. You need to surrender to the proper authority. You need to surrender to the proper authority. Imagine, we can't do it now because we're not allowed to go in there, so. Imagine back in January of 2020. (laughs) When you could go to the bank and actually go inside, and let's pretend that you're in line at Renaissance Bank, and Miss Angie happens to be the teller that day, and you're four people back, and as you're standing in line, you hear a commotion. You start looking forward, and somebody is trying to rob the bank. Miss Angie hands them the bag of money, and when the robber turns around, he kind of stumbles and throws the bag in the air, and you catch it. At that moment, the police also show up. And both the police officer and the bank robber have guns drawn. You're holding the bag, literally. And the robber says, give me the money or I'll kill you. And the police officer says, you're safe, nothing's going to happen. And you're stuck in the middle with the bag. You're literally caught between a rock and a hard place. Because guess what? You can't yield to both men. I can't answer the request of both the men who are telling me to do something the robber says, "Give me the money." The altar says, "You will be safe, and you're stuck." And the image is a reminder that we can't serve two people. I can't serve the world and serve my Savior. Look at verse seven of chapter four of James. This is the reminder, just like the scenario I just shared with you. Verse seven says, "Submit to God, resist the devil." And he will flee from you. In that little illustration, the officer is God. The robber is the devil. And you can only trust and surrender to one or the other because it's impossible. Scripture says you can't have two masters. The one you choose will determine how successful you will be in downloading the information this morning. Am I going to submit to God or am I going to submit to the world what am I gonna submit to to restore that broken heart because when you and I submit to God it is to yield all his authority in your life is to yield to all his authority it means he is in charge you surrender your will your desires your opinions are his through his will his power his wisdom this morning Think about this this morning. If you were suffering from heart disease and you had the opportunity to go to the world's leading cardiologist, would you reject what they told you to do to get better? No. You're going to the best cardiologist to tell you how to restore and fix your own heart. You're not going to ignore what they say as far as what medicine to take, what diet to do, what kind of food to eat. You're going to listen to every word they say because you trust them. Submitting to God is just like that. You've got to obey what he says. It starts by obeying what his word tells us. When we submit to God, the enemy has no ground to stop us. He has no ground to bother us. He has no ground to mess with us. So Satan, Scripture says, submit to God, resist the devil. He will flee from you. So the devil's got to take his box of pride, his box of covetedness, and his box of strife and take it home with him because he can't do anything when you submit to God. One step closer to mending that broken relationship is submitting to God. Here's the next step. It's a pretty easy one. Run, forest, run. Run. Just like Forrest Gump, you and I have to run to the safety of our Heavenly Father when we suffer from brokenness. Running to the Lord with our broken heart is that next step in restoring what James shows us in verse 8 when he says the first part of verse 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. So what exactly does it mean to draw near to God? I love what Psalm 145, 18 says. The Lord is near to all those who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. So how do we run like Forrest ran? Here are two thoughts for you, and here's two ways that we can sincerely call on the Lord. The first is through prayer, daily asking God to restore your broken heart and work out your circumstances. That's the first step in this part of the scripture, in drawing near to him, it means I have to come to him in prayer, asking him to restore what's broken in my heart in order to restore, but help work out those circumstances. The second thing is this, by seeking out his wisdom, that means you and I have to carve time out of our schedules to read the Bible. If I'm gonna draw near to God ...to restore that brokenness in my life. I've got to spend time with him in prayer. I've got to spend time with him in our word. Listen, God gives us two great avenues that are always available day and night. And just like Forrest in that video, he's running down that dirt road to get to his house... ...to the safety of mama. You and I know that we have a Father in heaven who stands with his arms open wide to receive us and take us in. If you're battling brokenness, come near to the one who can dry your tears and restore your heart. So run, forest, run. Here's the next one. Find the fairest of them all. Find the fairest of them all. The very first Disney movie I ever saw when I was much, 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 much younger, But I'm going to preface this. I did not see it when it came out. I saw it years later. I just want to make sure we're there. With Snow White and the seven dwarves. And you remember when the queen would always stand in front of that mirror. And she'd say, mirror, mirror on the wall. Who in the land is fairest of all? And the mirror would respond, you, my queen, are fairest of all. And that worked until Snow White showed up. And the queen walked up to that mirror and asked that question. the mirror responded, queen, You are full fair, but Snow White is a thousand times fairer than you. I'm glad I'm not the mirror. But think about this for a moment. Do you ever wish that your mirror had the ability to speak so candidly to you like it did the the queen? Would you really want your mirror to talk to you and point out what's right or what's wrong? Mirrors can't talk, I'm thankful, but look at them, we reflect on our experiences, we reflect on our brokenness, we reflect on those friendships we don't have, those relationships. And if we were to take an honest look at the reflection, we'd be able to see and face the truth about our flaws and assume personal responsibility for our failures, where we have messed up, Go back to James chapter 4, verse 8, and look at the second part of that verse. It says, Cleanse your heart, you sinners, and purify your heart, you double minded. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double minded. That verse is showing us in order to gain true restoration from the Lord, it is imperative that your hands and your heart and your mind are free from sin. I have to remove the sin that's in my life. I remove the sin that I'm struggling with. Listen, this is a crucial step. This is an important step in mending that broken heart because it involves confessing your offenses to God. And listen, there are two parts to confession. The first is this. Confession means to acknowledge the truth about God, that he alone is truly righteous, just, holy, Graceful, merciful, and forgiving. Only he alone can forgive us of our sin. It's acknowledging the truth of God, but here's the second thing. It's to tell the truth about ourselves that we are sinful, prideful, flawed, and prone to make mistakes. Listen, whenever we get upset or mad, the tendency is to point the finger at somebody else. But I want to remind you that when you point that first finger at someone, there are three fingers pointing back at you. It's usually a two-way street. Go with me real quick to Matthew chapter 7. I told you we'd be in both places, so stay with me. I'm getting near the end. Notice I didn't say we're at the end, so just bear with me. Matthew 7, starting in verse 3. Matthew 7, verse 3. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye and do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or do you? Or how can you say that your brother to your brother? Let me remove the speck from your eye, and look a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrite! First, remove the plank from your own eye, then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Think about it. How crazy would it be for you to allow a surgeon to do surgery on you with poor eyesight and dirty hands? Nobody's going to that operating room. So in the same manner, you and I, in order to seek restoration, we can't do it until our heart and our hands are clean. We're clean when we confess our sins to God. And he does something significant, miraculous in our life. Psalm thirty-four eighteen says this, The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and saves such as have a contrite spirit. The word contrite means showing sincere remorse our desire for atonement. It's evidence that we acknowledge the sin in our life. Look at verses 9 and 10 of James chapter 4 for just a second. 9 and 10, it says this, Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to gloom. Verse 10 Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. This morning, I realize that some of you that are here, some of you watching are dealing with a broken heart. You're dealing with, with hurt in your life. You're dealing maybe with betrayal. Here's what I want to remind you this morning. The key to restoring that broken heart is being able to ask For forgiveness. Because it may be you that's the issue. Both people play a part. Don't get me wrong. But sometimes you got to let go of that anger. I love what Charles Stanley said. He made this statement. He said, forgive the offender. Unless we release the people who have wronged us, bitterness and resentment will take root in our lives. Only by giving up our right for revenge and restitution can we begin to experience the freedom God desires for his children. As we surrender our hostile feelings to the Lord, we, his presence will begin to restore and heal our broken hearts. Confession is the key. When conflict and diverse division take place in our lives, you control the response. In your outline, you have this statement. When you choose to confess your own transgressions to God, you will be able to see the situation more clearly and accept responsibility for your heart with humility. Ask the Lord to show you any sinfulness and what you may have done and ask him for forgiveness because when we honestly look in the mirror and confess our sins we will find the fairest of them all, our Heavenly Father and that's a big step toward allowing him to restore your broken heart. A couple more points and we'll be out here, I promise you. Next you got to hammer the clamor. Hammer the clamor. Look at verse 11. Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are a, not a doer of the law, but a judge. When we are brokenhearted and angry, sometimes we want to respond by speaking evil towards that person who's hurt us. We, because we feel hurt. We want to lash out at that person. We want to repay damage we received and give back damage. But as a believer, you and I are called to choose a better course of action. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 30 through 32, I'm going to read the verses. You can mark them down in your outline. Ephesians 4, 30 through 32, look what it's, listen to what it says. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness Wrath, anger, clamor. Clamor means a loud uproar. It's an expression of dissatisfaction. It's an expression of wanting to get evil with somebody. Many of you this morning are professional clamorers, and you don't even know it. Some of you have done the same thing and don't even realize you're doing it. How many of you have heard these comments before, maybe even said them before? Mom, that's so unfair. That's clamoring. Officer, I absolutely was not speeding, and I'm going to fight this ticket. That's clamoring. That's a terrible call, ref. That's clamoring, and I'm guilty of that one. You know, if he would admit he's wrong, everything would be just fine. That's clamoring. We are, we are so quick to complain to anyone who will listen when we build our case as to why we're right and they're wrong. Listen, the very, the very basics of speaking evil against someone is just what we read. And let me tell you the rest of that verse, 31 of Ephesians 4. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Verse 32. And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God and Christ forgave you. Listen, Jesus suffered the cruelest death in history. He he died on a cross. He didn't deserve it, but he never protested. He never clamored. He never said, it's not my fault. He didn't say, I didn't do it. But scripture says in Isaiah 53, 7, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he did not open his mouth. Jesus Christ was innocent of any wrongdoing and being completely and totally sinless. He did not clamor when he was accused, pierced, insulted, humiliated, spit upon, and nailed to a cross. He did not plead his case. He simply responded, Father, forgive them and lay down his life for me and for you. My prayer is that we would all follow this amazing, humble, gentle example set by our Savior. When you are in conflict with someone, guard your words carefully so that you do not sin by speaking evil against them. You put an end to arguments and blame by trusting the one who knows your pain. He knows it firsthand, and he's the only one who has the ability to heal your heart and restore your heart. Last point, and thank you for not saying amen. Last point, don't carry the donkey. Don't carry the donkey. When you and I choose to judge someone James is saying that we're putting ourselves higher than God. Go back to James chapter 4. Look at verses 11 and 12 with me. Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge another? When you choose to judge someone, James is saying that you're placing yourself just a little bit higher than God and that your law is perfect. Instead of trying to have somebody live up to our standards, we should be living up to God's standards. So I want to share a story in closing. And Grayson's going to help me with the story here. There was a man and his son going to market, and they were walking their donkey to market. Well, some people know crowd made fun of him and said, why are you walking this donkey? He's designed to be ridden. So the man put his boy on the donkey and they started going a little further. A few minutes later, somebody else said, why is that young kid letting that old man walk and not ride the donkey? Hearing this, the man took the boy off and he got on the donkey and they rode a little further and somebody else came along. Why is that man letting that poor child walk while he's riding the donkey? So they both got on the donkey. A little while later, somebody in the crowd said, that poor animal, he's having to carry both of them on his back. So they came up with a solution. They got two poles, and they tied the donkey to the poles and carried him to town. But the story doesn't end there. As they were coming to town, they started to cross this bridge. And as they were crossing the bridge, one of the feet on the donkey got loose. The boy lost his step. And the donkey fell over the side of the bridge and died. The point to the story is we need to be careful in judging others because it's a slippery slope. Had the boy and the man done what their original plan was just to walk the donkey in the town, everything would have been fine. But because they heard everybody else's opinion, they felt they had to change things. They felt they had to do things a little bit different and led to that story. Listen. This is one of the points on your outline. When your friends, family, neighbors, and co-workers fall short of your expectations and you exact judgment, it is in contradiction to what Jesus calls you to do. In James chapter 7, verses 1 through 2, it says, Judge judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged, and what measure you use it will be measured back to you. On your outline, I made this statement. The way you judge others will determine the way the Father in heaven judges you. If you choose mercy and grace as he did when Jesus died on the cross for our sins, then we will move ourselves from the judge's seat, so to speak, and let God, who is worthy and qualified, do the judging. It means we have to let the Lord examine our hearts, examine where we are in our motives to restore the broken heart that's in our lives. This morning, I told you how to download this information. I've given you the steps to download. I want to share one more, and we're going to pray and move into a time of response. In Japan, there is a technique called aggrandize. And what they do is they take broken pottery and they put gold in the cracks. And they fill the cracks with gold, and here is the thinking. They believe that when something suffered damage and has a history, it becomes more beautiful. So they fill in the cracks and make it more beautiful. This morning, that is a beautiful analogy, and it's a reminder that this morning, you can let God take those cracks that are in your heart, those cracks of worry, those cracks of brokenness, those cracks that are hurting, and God can restore that heart and make it whole. Every head bowed and every eye closed. And just a moment John Ellen's is going to come and lead us in the song, I Surrender All. This morning, if you're dealing with brokenness, you're dealing with a heart that's hurting because somebody's done something to you. You can restore that this morning, but it starts with evaluating yourself first. It's coming to God with a clean hands and a clean heart and with pure motives. And in order for that to take place, in order for God to restore your heart this morning, you have to be willing to surrender everything to Him your desires, your motives, your thoughts, everything that you think you want or think you need. Turn those over to God. And let Him. Do what he needs to do in your life. This morning, you can surrender all to him. First, it comes by accepting him as Lord and Savior. But secondly, it comes by taking those things that have broken your heart and laying them at the foot of the cross. This morning, John is going to sing. This morning, I will be down front. If you need me to pray with you, I'll be happy to pray with you. But we have spots also at the altar where you can come and pray. But this morning, let God do a work in you. Father, thank you for today. Father, thank you for the opportunity just to be in your house. Father, as we come to this moment, Father, we must surrender everything to you, our desires, our thoughts. And Father, in order to restore that broken heart that's in our lives, that's the first step. But Father, as we do this, we surrender everything to you. So this morning, I ask that you would just move in a mighty way. And Father, more importantly, your will be done. And We ask this in your son's name. Amen. Let's all stand.